Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. On the line with me today is Dr. Michael Ruscio. Dr. Ruscio is a practicing physician, clinical researcher, and best-selling author whose practical ideas on healing chronic illness have made him an influential voice in the ancestral and functional medicine communities. Through combining research and years of clinical experience, Dr. Ruscio has developed a practical model that takes patients from ill to well with the least cost, least time, and least effort possible. His practical approach is to research and, and clinical practice has earned him invitations to lectures widely through the US, as well as many other international conferences and top health podcasts. Welcome, Dr. Ruscio. Hey there. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Well, um, so I got you. We've uh, organised this meeting today because a couple of two two main reasons was uh, we've got you coming to the 2017 Congress of International Medicine in the Hunter Valley in a couple of months, which is exciting on the microbiota. And you're obviously been focused on the microbiota for a long time in your practice. And the other area I uh, asked you to come along and speak about was your um, practice model, as we said in the introduction. Um, you've got this this model of taking patients from ill to well with the least cost, least time, and least effort possible. So you're very much into functional medicine, but one of the things I appreciate is you're critical is probably a, a strong word, but you're you know analysing functional medicine and trying to make it um, better and better for your patients so they can get better sooner. So first of all, um, perhaps just a bit of a background for our listeners. Um, you've become a as you probably. Um, cite yourself a, a gut-centric practitioner like many of us. How did you get into natural medicine and why did you um, focus on the gut? Well, the, the short version of the story was when I was in college, I ended up acquiring an intestinal amoebic infection and it manifested as a number of symptoms, but none of which were digestive in nature. I was predominantly experiencing fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, depression, feeling cold, thinning hair. And I did what many people end up doing, which was looking at my symptoms, researching them on the internet, thought I had hypothyroid for a while, tried some natural treatments there, didn't really get anywhere. I thought I had low testosterone for a while, did some natural treatments there, didn't get anywhere. Thought I had heavy metal toxicity, had documented heavy metals uh, that were high, although that's a very questionable diagnosis on some some testing did heavy metal detox felt no different so i spent a lot of time and money chasing my tail uh, back when i was a college student even though i was fairly well educated and i was uh, a pre-medical student and i was doing some you know clinical training and nutrition uh, at the same time and it wasn't until I found my way to a functional medicine practitioner that um, diagnosed me with the amoeba and then treated the amoeba that all of these symptoms went away. And I, I learned very early on that it's easy to fall into a syndrome of treating your symptoms naturally um, and not actually be treating the underlying cause of those symptoms, which oftentimes, not always, but in, in many cases, symptoms that are not even digestive symptoms can be ultimately being driven by a problem in the gut. And I've seen my experience be so true for so many patients. Um, and it's also kept me grounded 
with how much I do with patients in terms of doing things like thyroid support or uh, chelation or detox therapy or what have you. And by continually asking this question of what's the true underlying cause, how can I do this cheaply, more efficiently, what have you, I've been able to get better results with less time, less testing and less treatment. And I've been speaking about this more and more over the past few years. And I've really noticed that other practitioners are kind of really resonating with this message of feeling like uh, there's there's a lot of excess in functional medicine. And and so I know your, your initial question was my experience, but my experience uh, was, was true for many, um, both from the patient end and from the practitioner end, which was essentially a problem in the gut manifesting as a wide array of nonspecific symptoms that ultimately was remedied by identifying and, and treating that problem in the gut. Yeah, I think many um, patients um, go through that progression and uh, being a, a patient yourself, I think that's really obviously helped you get a sense of um, almost being overwhelmed by natural medicine. There's so many different avenues you can take and yeah, you can be chasing chasing sort of symptoms or metabolic pathways and so forth, but the, the art and the skill is trying to find the, the root cause, um, which has really sort of prompted you to broadcast this. So as we are talking before offline, you're, um, you know, you're in practice and you certainly do do the, the research yourself and writing a book and so forth. And now on top of that, you've created this um, Future of Functional Medicine Review. So obviously, you know, it's not because you're, you're idle and bored. Um, so <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so what's prompted you to, you know, really want to spread the word about it? And just if you could describe the um, sure. function of the Future of Functional Medicine Review for us. Sure. Well, the, the Future of Functional Medicine Review is a monthly clinical newsletter that's built for clinicians, but it's open to both clinicians and the lay public. And essentially, it's it's an outgrowth of my observation that so many clinicians have deeply resonated with this more cost-effective model of functional medicine I've been talking about on the podcast and in some of my videos and blogs and what have you. Um, so I, I didn't start the, the podcast or the blog or the website for practitioners, but from what I've been told, we've spawned a, a pretty sizable practitioner following, I think because, again, so many practitioners are looking for a more cost-effective model of functional medicine. So um, I was running into the challenge sometimes where the information I was putting out through the website, whether it be you know a video, a blog, or, or a podcast, or what have you, wasn't meant for clinicians, and I was getting the sense that you know the the group of clinicians that were following the work would like a little more clinically uh, you know a geared kind of uh, information. So the future of functional medicine review monthly newsletter essentially is comprised of one case study three to five research study reviews. And these research studies are meant to be highly clinically relevant studies that can enhance and update the way that you practice functional medicine immediately and and not academic fluff, which unfortunately oftentimes confuses practitioners. And you know, when, when academic fluff is cited too much in functional medicine, it, it actually confuses practitioners rather than you know, enlightens them. So uh, what I'm hoping to contribute is very clinically relevant information that will enlighten practitioners and make their their um, practice more efficient. And then there's a third and fourth section of a monthly 
practitioner question that we answer and also a practice tip, which might be something uh, about practice management or patient communication or, um, you know, office systems or what have you. And so I really started this to try to help provide clinicians a, you know, a, a monthly read that would kind of keep them grounded and, and give them a, a constant supply of clinically relevant information, whether it be case studies or research studies, that could help them start to turn the tide of their practice into a practice that is more cost effective and more efficient uh, in in the field of functional medicine. Fantastic, yeah. And, um, for the ones I've looked at, I'm really impressed. Like with the case study, it's not just a simple, um, you know, first prescription cured everything and they lived happily ever after. It was a real complex case, which is what we always see in clinic, it's never that straightforward. So it was really good to see, you know, clinicians step through the processes and try different uh, treatments and so forth. So that's really good learning there. Yeah, and the, and the research is, um, as you said, it's really clinically relevant. And you've also, I think, analysed it quite well and extracted the key messages. Um, yeah, you, know, you make, Nathan, a good point regarding the case studies because sometimes the case studies are, they're helpful, but they're just kind of like a simple summary of the actual case and what I provide in my case studies is pretty much a narration of the chart notes from visit to visit to visit and you know what am I thinking at this visit what did the patient well first of all what did the patient say what does that make me think and then what do we do and then we see the patient a month later and the process repeats you know what is the patient saying in terms of how they're feeling what does that make me think and then what do we do next and I, I think that format is is very helpful because it's not skipping over some of the key things. It, it's it's giving you the actual play-by-play, which I think helps helps in so many ways. Um, you know, it's not to say that this patient got better in three visits. It may have taken us eight to totally figure this out. And here were the key things that we observed that made us kind of hone in on this. And here are the tests that we used or the tests, sometimes more importantly, that we did not use because we didn't want to get distracted or we didn't need to go through the testing to uh, figure all this out. So, yeah, I've, I've been very happy with the case studies and, and people seem to be getting a lot out of them also. Brilliant, yeah. I found the same. And also the um, the practice tip, I think, is sometimes forgotten, I suppose. I, I'm certainly guilty of being really keen to find out the, the research information and even from a pra- practical you know, clinician perspective. But, yeah, it's also good to have those um, more sort of bigger picture practice tips on how to run a, a business or, you know, logistics of a practice. So, yeah, I highly recommend um, the listeners check that out. We'll put the, the link on our website and we'll, um, we'll give the URL shortly. So with that as a bit of a, a background with your sort of practice approach, um, I wanted to step into the, the world of the microbiota because that's an area where you're you really sort of focus and you specialise, not even not just as a clinician, but also you do a lot of the research there and have the ability to extract that sort of clinical relevance out of it. So it's an exploding area of this exponential growth of the research and um, it's often validated, you know, natural therapies that the the premise of natural therapy is about all, you know, disease starts in the gut and so forth. But I think we're also gathering some learnings from the research as well about sort of putting into context. So I want to go through a few areas of the, the microbiota from the research and get your sort of clinical take on things. So first of all, I suppose the, the big thing that um, they're looking at in the research is um, mapping out the microbiota, you know, the, the gene sequence and so forth and 
almost looking for this sort of utopian one-size-fits-all perfect microbiome so what have you gathered from that sort of research and can we really sort of extract any information about what we should be aiming for in our patients with the you know with the the composition of a microbiota gosh there's <laughs> there's so much to say <laughs> um so maybe i'll start with a few broad strokes and then we can That'd get to good. some yeah, of the yeah. particulars um so maybe how we define a microbiota, say, from more traditional gut testing, yes, just to help give people, because sometimes the microbiota is used as, as a very broad term. The way I define it, microbiota tests are the newer type of test that some clinicians are using, which will give you a highly detailed assessment of all of the bacteria and sometimes fungus in the gut. And so these are not things that are looking for pathogens or potential pathogens or documented clinical imbalances like H. pylori or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or candida or Clostridium difficile or what have you. These are things that will tell you all of the different phylotypes, diversity scores, uh, maybe give you a taxonomic tree of, of the, the different uh, species or, or phylum level bacteria in the gut. So it's really giving you the, the whole world of the, the microbiome. Uh, and and so the microbiome or the microbiota test, depending on what terminology you, you want to use, uh, those, those tests, in my opinion, have really no clinical relevance at this point. And I can't overstate that enough. And unfortunately, I think what has happened is this research interest in the microbiome and or the microbiota. The research interest in the microbiota has created a lot of information coming into the space, which is not clinically relevant, which has actually confused practitioners and made the practice in functional gastroenterology much worse. And it's, it's, a, it's a sad truth, but it is a truth. And I can say I see that because I see patients going to clinicians and these clinicians running tests that are tests that have been used in a, well, first of all, they're, they're tests that have not been shown to have any clinical correlation with a known treatment or give any suggestion as to what sort of treatment intervention should be undergone. And they're usually not even the same tests that have been used in the research studies that have been used to justify said test. They're a, a cheaper version or a simpler version or a modified version. So I can't overemphasize how important that is, is that these, these tests are, are not giving you any clinically actionable data. And if you introduce a non-clinically relevant test into the clinical process, you just create more confusion and make it harder for you yourself as a clinician to figure out what to do. Now, I should say that there is one test out of Norway, and this is the most advanced out of all the microbiota assays that has shown correlation to IBS and IBD. All they've done is show correlation. And this is not one of the big box uh, lab company test. This is a, this is a specialty test that's only available through a, a clinic in Norway, but they've only showed correlation, which means we don't even know if said correlation will say that a given treatment for IBS or IBD will be more or less effective. Um, and what's funny, and, and again, 
putting it simply, but sometimes we have to start with with the broad strokes and then fill in some of the details. Some of the recommendations that are suggested from some of the contemporary microbiota academic literature actually would push a clinician to recommend treatments for a patient that actually have the highest probability of making the patient worse. And what this really boils down to, to put it simply, is most of the academic research in the microbiota, for reasons we can get into, suggests that people need to have more fiber, more prebiotics, and feed their microbiota. However, if you do something that it sounds so simple, but is almost yeah. never done, which is look at what the clinical trials show when you do that. You see that those types of interventions for people with gastrointestinal conditions have the highest probability of making them worse. And it's actually antibacterial type treatments like a lower FODMAP diet or antimicrobials, in some cases antibiotics, or even probiotics, which actually have antibacterial effects as, as part of how they aid tend to be the therapies that work the best. So the real travesty is because of some of the academic research, which is not in its clinical phase, and any of the leading academic researchers will, will tell you, has been taken by clinicians who are way overstepping and been used to generate testing or, or tests and recommendations that actually tend to make patients worse than they do better. So it's, it's unfortunate that in trying to learn more and do better, those who are a little bit ill-informed or um, uh, misunderstanding the data are actually making the practice of functional GI worse. Great. Yes. So just to sort of summarize, I think um, like in the research, they're looking at, you know, the, the phyla breakdown and even down the, the genus and even sometimes looking for the maybe hero species that's contributing or correlated with good health or absent in poor health. Hopefully over time that will, you know, bear bear fruit and we can be more certain about these things but until that point you're probably better off um, relying on traditional uh, signs and symptoms and other other markers so what sort of what are the key things you look for then to identify say dysbiosis and and you know one other thing Nathan that just shot into my head as you were mentioning that because there's there's so many things to go into and uh, in the book, I think I make a pretty airtight case for, for what I'm advocating. And we use in the book over a thousand medical references, which most are randomized control trial level data or higher. Um, but there's also this piece of we don't know if the changes in the microbiota are cause or effect. Yes, I was going to get and, to that. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it's very important to, to bear in mind that in something like inflammatory bowel disease, part of that disease is actually the immune system attacking the commensal microbiota. So the changes that we're seeing may be adaptive by the host in a healthy way. And perhaps this is why when we undergo interventions that feed the microbiota, we actually see the course of the disease or the clinical disease activity in the majority of the studies get worse. Um, so it's another important point, just because we're seeing that healthier people have one microbiota and people who have different conditions have a different microbiota doesn't mean that if we try to force that change into the ill population that they will then be healthy and it's it's a huge leap that's been made and which should never be made which is observation now equates to a clinical treatment recommendation yeah, exactly. um, and also the um that sort of using the 
the hunter-gatherers, the paleo, um, like people who are actually still living a paleolithic lifestyle as the sort of poster child for how our microbiome should be. I think you've spoke a little bit there about how that could even be perhaps um, detrimental to a Westerner if we try and emulate that because of the way the, the microbiome is adapted to their their diet and lifestyle, which is what we're not currently, you know, consuming. Precisely. I mean, there's there's this, you know, old construct which, <laughs> again, has been forgotten about here, which is you can't take one population, you know, something you find in one population and then force that into another population and expect the same benefit because there are multiple other things in the environment of a given population that may not be present in the other population. And using the Africans as an example, they have a very robust microbiota, in large part probably not even due to their diet, but due to the fact they're living in dirt and in close contact with animals. Um, but that also gives them a highly attuned immune system. And so their immune system is well calibrated to deal with a very ro robust microbiota. Now, we uh, could then erroneously suggest, well, people in the West or in, in Westernized societies are sick because they don't have a robust enough microbiota. But what is being overlooked there is many Westerners may not have a immune system that is healthy enough to to cope with or to manage a more robust microbiota. And the way I've come to that insight is simply looking at what happens when we do interventions that make the microbiota more quote unquote robust, like higher fiber and higher prebiotic diets. And for many people with especially gut conditions like IBS and IBD, the majority of the data shows those things are either not, not effective or Detrimental. Yes, you can find a study here or there showing benefit, and there is a small subset of people who may find benefit, and there may be a time and a place for some fiber and for some prebiotics. But the big point to realize and to take away from this is that if your initial phase therapies for patients with IBS and IBD are all probacterial approaches, you're probably going to make more patients worse than you are better. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Um, so... Back to the uh, almost that correlation versus causation or the, the cause and effect. One area I also wanted to explore with you was like how do we put the gut into context with the rest of the body? Uh, it's obviously you know a natural medicine axiom that all diseases uh, start in the gut. Now I don't want to sound like a, a heretic, but um, is there exceptions to this rule? And, and how do you go about you know working that out? Do you by default think most patients? their illness is because they got symptoms if they got symptoms sorry got symptoms and they got systemic illnesses but is there a case for vice versa as you said like you know ibd the inflammation is affecting the microbiota so how do you you know sort of weigh it up well that's a, it's a great question and you know it's certainly not to say that everything can be addressed by improving someone's gut but there's also a chance that everything could be aided by improving a condition in the gut. So it's it's a little bit of a clinical quagmire. And my general approach is to start with a reasonable treatment plan for the gut and reevaluate someone's symptoms. This is very easy to justify when you have a reasonable treatment plan, meaning you're going to order just a few tests, not eight, nine, ten tests, 
and your expense to the patient is going to be minimal rather than being thousands and thousands of dollars and your treatment plan and duration will be fairly short and fairly simple rather than being months and months and months and months uh, so that's that's one you know one way to substantiate this model. The other is to you know make sure you evaluate for other things that may need to be addressed, like hypothyroidism. And if someone is frankly hypothyroid, then yes, they'll need to undergo hypothyroid treatment concomitantly at the same time as their their gut treatment. Um, so screening for things like hypothyroid, anemias. Uh, you know, frank hormonal imbalances can be very helpful. I should mention that with hypothyroid, I'm referring to frank hypothyroid. I'm not referring to an obscure, you know, um, problem or, or, TSH or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm not referring to subclinical hypothyroid, which would be elevated TSH and normal T4, or a very meticulous assessment of the T4 to T3 ratio or reverse T3 to T3. In my opinion, those problems come always come back to a problem somewhere else, A, and B, I think for many of those, the clinical utility has been grossly overstated. Um, and so a frank thyroid problem, frank thyroid hormone insufficiency that requires thyroid hormone replacement, anything beyond that uh, usually can resolve as you get things like diet, lifestyle and gut health remedied. Great, yeah, and I must uh, urge our listeners to um, listen to your, you've got several really good thyroid podcasts, which I think has even um, tempered my maybe zealotry about thyroid. I was probably of the um, view that any sort of mild TSH elevation was red flag and everything had to get down super low and, um, you know, T3 had to be... Uh, balance of T4, but yeah, you really brought to my attention looking at the research. It's, as I said, quite overstated. So, um, yeah, really encourage listeners to, to check those out. Um, so, yeah, talking about that sort of structure where you essentially do like a, a conservative um, therapeutic trial as a, an investigation to see if it's the gut and then, um, you know, in a sense, move on. So, I wanted to talk about that sort of treatment decisions you're making, like. Again, that comes back to testing. Do you invest a lot of money into a test, which would just tell you to probably um, undertake a treatment, which has cost you know a quarter of that? Um, I think that's really important that you often stress with your, your patients, and also uh, your, in your sorry your podcast, and also the other thing that um, really struck me, which is quite simple when I look at it, and um, it's often often overlooked, is choosing our remedies based on clinical data rather than mechanistic sort of, um, you know, framework. Can you describe the sort of conundrum you're finding and, and possibly the frustration you're hearing in, in functional medicine about getting sort of caught up or swept away with, um, you know, mechanisms over clinical data? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, uh, and your and your last bit there about mechanism versus clinical data, I think is one of the main reasons or the main sources for so much confusion in functional medicine. And most of the things that I no longer do either in gut, which is my primary focus, or thyroid, which is an area of my secondary focus, or just things that I don't do in general in, in any area of healthcare have to do because I, I've learned or discovered or remembered, whatever you want to call it, that 
we should not be making clinical decisions based upon mechanism data. And, you know, this this hints a little bit at an evidence-based model, but it's not to say that we have to be only evidence-based. I believe in being evidence-based, but not evidence-limited. There are times when we don't have high-level scientific evidence like clinical trials, systematic reviews, or meta-analyses to answer questions. So then we have to use the best information that we have. However, what happens more often than not is a given guru or teacher or what have you, they already have an opinion on an issue. And so they go and find references that support their opinion rather than looking to the available science to update and improve their opinion. And so what oftentimes happens here is Dr. John Smith believes X. So he goes and he finds the references that support X and he makes a case for X. That is really not good for anybody because what we want to do is, and and what oftentimes happens there is there are higher level scientific studies like clinical trials that answer the question in terms of what is the best way to treat this condition. However, if someone has a preconceived belief and is searching for references that support their their preconceived belief, they may ignore those studies and find observation data or mechanism data or animal data to support their belief system. And that's one of the key things that we try to showcase in our clinical newsletter, which is constantly bringing forth clinical trial data. And the microbiome research is a shining example of that. The ill-informed recommendations that tend to make some people worse are oftentimes based upon mechanistic observations. When you simply look at the clinical data, you can clearly see what the best treatments are for patients. And the same thing happens with thyroid. We see some of these mechanistic studies for example, showing that iodine is very healthy for the thyroid. However, for many people, iodine can really provocate immune conditions. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's 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 very important just to keep one, I guess, simple truth in mind, which is when we have the available evidence, which in many, many, many of these areas, we already have the, the clinical evidence available. We should be using the high-level clinical data to guide decision-making and update our recommendations and not using lower-level science like mechanism data or animal data um, to reinforce a a pre-existing belief. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it's great to have the clinical evidence and I think uh, I I like the mechanistic data just to try and explain to people how, how this you know, this protocol does work rather than the other well, way around. You, you know, Nathan, just, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but um, you see the mechanisms oftentimes used as information marketing, where yes. the mechanism shows here is a inflammatory cytokine, and after being given this vitamin, or let's let's use a prebiotic as an example. This is actually a, a great example for this. Um, so an, an anti-inflammatory compound like a short chain fatty acid goes up after administration of fructooligosaccharides. So you may so that's a mechanism. That that would be found in a mechanism study. So now you may see some sort of, you know, well depicted diagram showing a molecule of FOS 
going into the intestines and then a green arrow in the upward direction showing increase in short chain fatty acids and you know that equaling uh, an intestinal cell that has less inflammation that is mechanism that is mechanism marketing now let's go into the real world and look what happens at a group of patients who transition from a low FODMAP diet to then this is a group of IBS patients yes. um, and I'll maybe back up and, and explain that a, a one research study took a group of IBS patients, put them on a low FODMAP diet for three weeks. 85% of the patients saw an improvement in disease activity in, in their symptoms essentially. Then half the patients were put on or continued on a low FODMAP diet and half the patients went on fructo-oligosaccharide probiotic. What did they find? They found that of the people who continued on low FODMAP, 80% of those people maintained their improvements. Whereas only 30% of the people who went on the fructo-oligosaccharide probiotic actually maintained their improvement. When they looked further, they found that the people on the low FODMAP diet, which by the way is criticized sometimes because it doesn't feed your gut bacteria, they had less inflammation in the intestines. But what happened to that mechanism study? Well, this is why you should not make a clinical treatment decision based upon mechanism because what you see in a textbook or in a you know, biochemistry diagram isn't always going to apply that way in the real world. This is why clinical trials are needed before we you know, recommend drugs or, or other therapies. So their inflammation went down even though they were eating less prebiotic. Their symptoms became vastly improved, but for some reason their microbiota became, quote unquote, more dysbiotic. Hmm. In the other in the other group, the group that 70% of them felt worse, they had, they were consuming the fructo-oligosaccharide probiotic, they had more inflammation. But they also had more short-chain fatty acids, which are supposed to be anti-inflammatory, but for some reason caused inflammation in these people, and their microbiota looked healthier. So, depending on what of you know all this information you're looking at, if you're looking at the mechanisms, you may say, well, the people on the fructooligosaccharides had increased short-chain fatty acids, and short-chain fatty acids are healthy for your epithelial cells. So everyone with intestinal inflammation should go on short-chain fatty acids. That's what happens if you only look at mechanism. But if you look at the big picture, as we see in clinical trials, we see that while, yes, people on fructooligosaccharides had more short-chain fatty acids, they also had, for some reason, paradoxically, more inflammation and more disease activity. So this is, a, I think, a good example of why you can be very misled when you look at mechanism data and why, unfortunately, I think gut health or, or clinical functional medicine in GI has actually gotten slightly worse in some circles because there's more information now in the mix. And if you don't know how to parse through that information effectively and you're following the wrong information, you can actually be inadvertently making someone worse. Great. So yeah, obviously clinical data trumps. And another similar area which um, I think you uh, have looked into is treating based on like test results and often you could argue putative test results, for example, and comparing to the, the clinical trials, such as like with using adaptogenic herbs, the researchers seldom, if ever, you know, measure cortisol levels before they prescribe the uh, adaptogenic herbs. The patients are stressed; they take the adaptogens, they often feel better. Yet in, in the gut, the probably the, the big one is testing the microbiome and 
looking at like lactobacillus levels or bifidobacterium levels and thinking that we need to tailor and come up with a um, prescription based on what's present or absent from that stool test rather than if they've got IBS, what you know, what clinically proven probiotics can you take? Can you discuss that? Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> um, you know, again, when you when you look at the clinical research, there are almost no studies using probiotics that first test the stool showed what probiotic someone was deficient in and then created or used a probiotic that was you know tailored based upon what they were low in uh, and in fact there are some studies where people go on a lower FODMAP diet again to use that example and their disease or their their, their symptoms improves yet their bifidobacterium levels go down but even more paradoxically, one of the more effective probiotics is bifidobacterium. So how do we account for this? Well, if you're trying to take the mechanism and project to a clinical decision, it's going to be very confusing and very misleading. Right? It's just a simple thing. It's best to figure out what works first and then back extrapolate to try to understand the mechanism. That's that's the way this should be done. Identify you know, it can be done the other way also, but it's more efficient, in my opinion, to find out what works clinically and then try to reverse track what the mechanism is that substantiates yeah. that. So for adrenal support and for probiotics are two shining examples of that. Um, m there are many studies showing adaptogenic herbs are helpful for the symptoms of adrenal fatigue. And they... Only one study, to my knowledge, has actually tested the adrenals first and then given adaptogens. Most of the time, if you just if you see some of the keynote symptoms of adrenal fatigue, even though I really don't like that term, yeah, then we, yeah, then then you can just give someone some adrenal support and monitor their response. And with probiotics, same thing. I had a patient in just the other day who had spent several months working with a DO and they were trying to repair this person's gut based upon um, stool tests showing they were low in certain bacteria. This person had IBS. They were given a bunch of fiber, probiotics, and prebiotics that made them worse because this doctor was trying to treat the lab results. The patient came into me. We found IBS. We also found SIBO, and we went in the exact opposite direction. <laughs> Even though they were low in some different bacteria on their stool test, which has very little relevancy to clinical treatment, we actually put them on antibacterial approaches of diet and of herbal antimicrobials, and they responded beautifully. So it's exactly what I mean by, uh, unfortunately, there's there's you know, not non-clinically relevant information being introduced into the clinical process that's making it harder for clinicians to get results for their patients. And I, you know, again, I don't want to come off like I'm trying to say people are, are ill-intended. I think all clinicians are trying to help people. It's just unfortunate that sometimes, um, you know, there's a new lab or a new supplement that's trying to market to doctors. And so they use information to market to them. And if you as a clinician don't understand how to evaluate what of that information marketing is sound science or just kind of this you know mechanism that is attractive for marketing type of science it can be easy to be misled great and i'm glad you acknowledge that yeah we're all trying to help people get better and we've all got the best intentions and i don't want to come across as too negative amongst all this and 
clearly, you know, we're both passionate about functional medicine and we just want to, you know, as you said, make it um, more cost effective and more clinically effective. So I want to touch upon one other area which I think you're quite, um, you know, balanced in and this can be a sort of a, a limitation or a pitfall for patients is that sort of rigidity of, you know, um, not only having to take a lot of supplements or do many, many tests, the other thing is that the compliance and um, which is important for gut obviously is diet but at the same time we don't want to ideally paint them into a corner for the rest of their lives where they're you know feeling miserable they might be eating paleo um, but you know their quality of life has gone um, completely down because they feel so restricted nothing against paleo per, per se so I just want to sort of get your you know perspective on on some of these things um, I think yeah you were you're certainly objective about this. For example, you had um, is it Alan Lebonowitz the, um, a little while ago who's almost a, a, an advocate of gluten, which, as we know, gluten, when you remove it from someone's diet, when it's indicated, it can make profound dip, um, differences. But at the same time, um, we also want to be liberal in a sense as well. So um, what's your position on you know in, employing diets and then also making more flexible once the, the patient you know is feeling better sure sure um great question and yes uh alan levinovitz wrote a book i think it was entitled the gluten lie and he's a uh, trained as a i believe a theologian and he, yeah. he was making some interesting remarks that sometimes diet looks more like religion than it does like science <laughs> right and and i couldn't agree with that more um and you know there, there's a quote that i think would be a good lead into this discussion which is Dogma can only exist in the presence of ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance in an insulting way. I mean yeah. ignorance by the true definition, which is just a lack of understanding. So it's maybe a good lead in. When someone is hard driving on any position, they usually are a bit ignorant, meaning ill-informed, because when one understands all of the data – both the data supporting a position and that contradicts a position, it's very difficult to have a very hard-lined or rigid opinion because you see that there's evidence both supporting and contradicting. So it usually makes one a bit more tempered in their opinion. And I think gluten is a good example of that. And I agree with you, Nathan. Out of all the, the dietary changes that we can make, I would say that removing gluten and maybe a couple other common allergens like dairy from the diet can be some of the most effective, if not the most effective. So in total agreement with you there. However, what becomes problematic is when we find a plethora of data showing that gluten is really bad for people with celiac. And then we make the huge leap to say that everyone, even those without celiac, have to eat as if they had celiac. That does a huge disservice to a patient because there is a psychosocial impact of eating a highly restrictive, highly compliant gluten-free diet that people that are very, very mild, non-celiac gluten sensitive will actually be hurt by because you're introducing a level of stress into their life that does not need to be introduced. So it's just a, a very simple thought, which is, one should avoid gluten to the degree to which they have a sensitivity to gluten. Those with celiac will notice they have quite an aversion. Those with severe non-celiac gluten sensitive will notice a similar aversion. Those with a very mild case of non-celiac gluten sensitive will notice they have a very mild aversion. And then there are some people that notice no change 
from gluten either. And I think if clinicians on the line are honest with them with themselves, they can reflect on and think about patients that go gluten free and don't feel any different. So we have to acknowledge that. And we also have to acknowledge that it is stressful to try to adhere to 100% compliance to a gluten-free diet. And so if someone can get away with some gluten and they can go to an occasional birthday party or wedding and have a little bit and not need to feel guilty or feel fearful about it, we shouldn't be coercing them into thinking that they should feel bad or guilty about it. One of the most common responses I'll hear to this is what about an autoimmune condition? Nowhere has it been written that gluten is the cause and the treatment for every autoimmune condition. That is a that is a very erroneous line of thinking. I can cite for you definite studies that have shown no impact on given autoimmune condition from a gluten-free diet. Um, and yes, people with celiac who also have other autoimmune conditions also you know, tend to see those other autoimmune conditions improve. So we can make a case there. And in some cases, those with non-celiac gluten sensitivity also can see autoimmune conditions improve. So there's definitely evidence supporting a gluten-free diet. Yes, I'm, I'm in agreement there. Um, but there are also studies showing no improvement at all, which should just make us a little more tempered in our recommendation, right? It's I'm not saying that everyone can eat gluten, but I'm not saying no one can eat gluten. And if someone is listening to this getting angry, then I would offer them perhaps they should look a little bit more broadly into the issue of gluten because if you can't even conceive of this without becoming upset or feeling offended, then that probably means you've been you know, reinforcing your prior belief on that rather than being open to a, a litany of different opinions or information on this. And I, I think it was Earl Nightingale that said the the – the the mark of an educated mind is one that can entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it. So um, those are some some thoughts on gluten. And um, yeah. I don't know, I'll pause there, I guess, if, if there's something no, you want to. That's very well put, um, which sort of leads into this one thing that um, struck me listening to one of your podcasts that you're discussing a, a typical day in your office. And um, I think we're often – really good at giving advice and prescribing more and more things to do but maybe the patient isn't always ready and you, you frame up the, with the patient at the start is like how aggressive or cautious do you want to go with this um can you explain that and how well that's received and how well that works mm, yeah uh it, it works really well um and all it really is doing is trying to meet a patient where they are um and maybe to come at this from a really practical perspective, and again, I, I you know I'm going to use some general descriptive terms. I do not mean to offend anybody, but I'm sure clinicians can relate to the fact that chronically Ill, chronically ill patients can be challenging. They can be kind of draining. Um, oftentimes, they've spent a lot of money on their care. They might be a little bit jaded. They may have some issues with trust because they feel like they may have been taken advantage of in the past. So. Chronically ill patients can be can be a little bit draining, and not out of any fault of their own. It's it's just the nature of of the situation. So, one of the things that can be beneficial for a clinical practice is have a model that is is not so excessive that the only patients that are willing to work with you are those who are 
chronically ill and essentially kind of desperate and willing to go to these extreme leaps and bounds to get healthier. We definitely want to be able to help those people, and it's great that they're that motivated, but it's also nice, as I'm sure any clinician listening can identify with, to have patients that aren't very far down their healthcare journey, and it, it might be a simple case of IBS or a simple case of SIBO. And so when you keep making your model more expensive and more excessive, you continually filter out those you know, non-progressed patients that also need help. Um, and those patients sometimes are a nice change of pace from the chronically ill patients that have highly complex cases. So from a practice management perspective, it's important to be able to practice in a model that meets patients where they are. If someone comes in and they've already been on seven different diets and they've seen 10 different doctors, okay, you know, we may be a little bit more robust. But if someone's come in and they don't even know what the paleo diet or the low FODMAP diet is or they haven't even tried a probiotic, I don't have to do the same level of testing and treatment for them as the person that's already been on eight diets and been to 10 doctors. Um, so some of those things are just easy to pick up on in your initial intake or your paperwork. But I also ask patients as part of our paperwork, would you like to be aggressive or conservative with your care? And now when there are things that are not essential but may be helpful, and there's a number of things that fall into that camp, then for the people that want to be aggressive, I will elect to use those things. And for the people that want to be conservative, I will withhold those things. And these things do make a big difference. Just as a quick example, I had a patient about six months ago, a young girl who had SIBO and also had acne. And we had seen some nice results with her digestive symptoms after treating her SIBO, but only a mild improvement in her acne. And we found some female hormone imbalances and had done some treatment for those. And again, th this whole care plan of looking at her SIBO, treating that, treating some of her female hormone imbalances, we saw great results with her gut symptoms, but only mild results with her acne. The acne being her chief complaint, I didn't want to fiddle around with this too much. So I said, I, I know a woman's health expert here in town. I want to refer you over to her for the hormonal piece and you know I can continue to monitor your gut or she can whatever she and you decide on is fine because I have confidence in her from a gut perspective also um, and let's have you go over there with someone who has more specialization in, in women's health and see if we can get this dialed in well they were back in my office a few months later because this provider unfortunately put her on a very intense treatment program. And this girl was a sophomore in college, living in a dormitory with limited, you know, limited resources. And so even this colleague that I respect kind of made a huge miss, which was you can't give someone 15 supplements to take or more. It may have even been as many as 18. When they're a college student, you have to really pick your battles and try to give them the minimum of, of what you think will help. And I also treat the mother and I tried to explain to the mother, well, go back to this provider, explain to them that your daughter feels overwhelmed and see if they can revise things. And to tell you the truth, they didn't even bother. They just came back into my office because they trusted me and they trusted I'd be attuned with their needs. So, um, you know, it, it definitely is something that patients tend to prefer uh, in, in 
many cases of, of just being able to meet them where they are and not overtreat them. And again, it, and, and something else I should mention, more treatment and more testing does not equate to better results. In fact, I would argue the exact opposite because if you have too much data, you can't make heads or tails of what to do or what the underlying your most important findings are. And if you're doing too much treatment, it's very hard to assess what treatments are being effective and what treatments are not being effective. Well said. It's almost like a mantra for you now, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> and so yeah, I think, um, although we've sort of probably you know gotten some, some contentious topics there, I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of re- relief amongst the listeners and um, head shaking rather than, than swearing at us about you know, um, touching upon these uh, these subjects. And I sense that's what's been the reception from, you know, your audience. So tell me before we wrap up about your, your podcast, your website, and I also believe you've, um, you're just putting the finishing touches on, on a long authored book. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And yes, and, and to the audience, maybe just to, you know, restate this one more time, you know, all these things that we've been talking about are really better for both clinicians and for patients. If we can get patients the same or better results in less time and with less money, we can treat more patients, we can help more people, and we can do so more quickly and less expensively. So, you know, all these things are for the greater good of, of both patient and, and practitioner alike. And many of these things that I'm criticizing are things that I used to do, which is how I've learned not to do them. So, th- you know, this is in no way a criticism, but but rather uh, you know, some constructive observations of the field as someone in the field of things that we can do to do better for our own practices and for our, our own patients. So that's maybe the first thing that I should mention. Um, and there are a number of resources available to practitioners. I'd say the the best resource is contained at our, our website, um, but at a, at a specific page. It's drrushow.com, which is dr. R-U-S-C-I-O dot com. And if people go to slash review, they can plug into this clinical newsletter, this monthly clinical newsletter that we were talking about, Nathan. Um, And if people want to plug in for more information on the book, which will hopefully be available late 2017 or early 2018, that can be found at drrusho.com slash gut book. And then for general information, we have a weekly podcast, which a lot of practitioners follow and seem to enjoy, and also a weekly video and a weekly article. And we talk a lot about gut, a lot about thyroid, and um, you know some other uh, you know uh, ancillary concepts in functional medicine. Brilliant. And yeah, just to repeat, you'll be down in June in Australia for the um, International Congress on Natural Medicine. You'll be t- talking about these concepts. You'll be diving into things like um, SIBO or SIBO. Uh, IBS, IBD, and yeah, we hope to do a maybe a bit of a follow-up uh, discussion on SIBO because it's something that you really specialise in. So, Dr. Risho, I really thank you for your time. I'm looking forward to meeting you, and I'm hopefully, um, yeah, your listeners out there will uh, uh, follow your, your work and also find as much um, enjoyment as I do from it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.